behalf of the Institute of the Americas, let me invite you, let me welcome you uh, to this special panel on Ayotzinapa uh, one year later. Um, I want to thank uh, Tom Rath and Maria De Vecchi for organizing this panel. Uh, we had, it is now just shy of a year ago that uh, 43 uh, teacher training students were forcibly disappeared in the state of Guerrero, uh, Mexico. Uh, we had an event like this uh, last November, I believe, uh, when the world was still in shock over the uh, dimensions uh, and character of this uh, human rights tragedy. Uh, one of the people in the audience at the time asked whether or not the Mexican government might simply try to kind of push this under the carpet or push it aside and, and move on and pretend that it didn't happen. And my response was, oh no, that couldn't possibly happen. Uh, but in fact, that does seem to have been the Mexican government's, uh, and I was, one speaks about governments in a kind of unanimous sense, but they're not, uh, but the government's uh, at least public uh, conduct response. Uh, but events have not allowed that really to go, to go forward or prosper uh, very well as a political initiative. And of course, I'm sure you're all aware that a special panel of the Inter-American Human Rights Commission uh, recently issued a quite devastating report uh, that would not have been much news, uh, apparently not much news to people in the government because they follow this uh, as it moved forward, and not much moves, move, news to anyone who has closely followed the situation in Mexico uh, because none of the findings were necessarily great surprises given well, the, the tenor of Mexican press coverage and so forth. But nonetheless, a report that was extremely devastating of the government's handling of the matter uh, from really start to the current day. Uh, and uh, is no doubt the basis for some of our uh, discussions uh, here this afternoon. Uh, we have a very uh, distinguished uh, group of panelists. I'll introduce some of the three of the least uh, who were, were with us last year. I'll introduce them in the order in which they will speak. Uh, Rupert Knox, uh, formerly with Amnesty International and now a PhD student at the University of Sheffield. Uh, Maria De Vecchi, a, a PhD student here at the Institute of the Americas. Uh, Professor Monica Serrano uh, from El Colegio de Mexico, uh, Dr. Thomas Rath of the UCL History Department, and Dr. Benjamin Smith, an associate professor at the University of War. And so without further ado. Okay, well, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm Rupert Knox. I used to be a researcher on Mexico for Amnesty International, but as uh, Told that you just told that I'm now a PhD student, so I have a slight change in role, and I'm still adjusting to that process. Um, and I've been asked to speak first in a we had a rather random discussion about the issues, so I don't think mine necessarily is the, the, the introduction to everybody else. But I will. I've been asked to speak about the Ayotzinapa and the forced disappearance of the 43 students, and in relation to the media. So um, I provided a, a talk around that. So one year on from the 26th of September, in the enforced disappearance of 43 students and the murder of six people in Iguala, the country remains in the grip of a human rights crisis. The role of the media in relation to Ayotzinapa is interesting and raises a lot of old and concerns while highlighting new trends and hopes. While I refer to, when I refer to the media and talking about, I'm talking about new and old, even though in reality most of the old now participate in the new. I'm referring to TV, radio, newsprint, and internet, and the latter, i.e. internet, obviously includes internet, TV, radio, and newspapers. Freedom of expression, the role of the media, corporate domination of the media, and access to information provoke considerable uh, public debate in Mexico. Ayotzinapa has highlighted many of these issues. 
It's also important to remember that the attacks on journalists have become a routine in Mexico over recent years with uh, at least 15 killed in the last five years and in the majority of those cases the investigations um, are not effective and obviously the recent killing of Ruben Espinosa and while controversial it raises similar questions and the investigation back is ongoing. From the outset the media coverage of it is an upper by the main establishment news uh, media such as Televisa, TV Azteca and Excelsior Universal caused outrage among survivors, relatives and victims and the social movement that developed around the campaign for justice and truth. Limited coverage, particularly victims and the tendency to give added weight to the government's version of events reinforced the view of many citizens that these media remain tame supporters of the administration. This is clearly not a new view <coughs> but it is given extra weight by the gravity of the crime and the apparent willingness of some media to limit the political impact on the government of its handling of the crisis, preferring to focus on the movement's apparent radical agenda. This included on occasions circulating unsourced official rumours suggesting students' involvement in organised crime. This is an old technique, often used over the years of the, the upsurge in violence since 2006, of blaming the victim without evidence, thus stigmatising victim and relative, reducing public sympathy, sympathy and ultimately reducing the pressure to conduct full investigations. The movement, the social movement's core, or one of the social movement's core messages of Fuel Estado, it was the state, has been a key element to challenge the government and much of the press coverage of the, event, of the events. This has sought to distance the federal government. So the, the, um, the federal, federal government and the media have sought to distance the federal government from the crime. <coughs> the recent publication of the, uh, the Inter-American Commission report um, and uh, shows um, sorry <laughs> how this appears to continue and how only sorry the recent media coverage of how the only 100, the 111 detainees are all only at municipal level either municipal police or officials alongside low level drug traffickers those are the only in detention no other senior officials either at state or federal level um, and the evidence of possible omission, collusion and obstruction indicated in the Inter-American Commission report, including federal police and military, has never been followed up. The treatment of the case and the focus of the media attention and messages has been, key to, has been a key battleground. The protests of relatives of victims outside Televisa, of Televisa chimed with the widely held view that Televisa's dominant media role and generally supportive approach of the administration is an obstacle to real possibility. <coughs> Sacking of Carmen Aristegui by Inversi in March in the aftermath of reporting on high-level political corruption also suggested a return to the old ways of ensuring that the media establishment acts in accordance with the government's displeasure. Obviously impossible to prove, but as uh, uh, the, the book La Otra Guerra Secreta uh, um, by Jacinto Rodriguez Munguia um, suggested only time and the opportunity of access to archives allows you to really evidence such, such decision-making. Nevertheless, the real story for me um, in, in relation to the media um, is not so much the battle between the traditional uh, link between the traditional media and the governing elite, um, but the impact of digital media in diluting this suffocating influence. I think this has occurred in several ways, including the emergence of uh, new TV and other, other services delivered via the internet. And I will focus on, on social media, partly is where my PhD is focused. In the first instance, Surviving normalistas use social media to gain national attention to what happened and contrasted early efforts by the authorities to misrepresent the events. YouTube, Twitter, 
Facebook and Instagram have all continued to play a crucial role in disseminating information on the case and follow-up events, uh, follow events by activists, independent media, relative, and a host of others. However, its role is not limited to that. It has also provided a means of coordinating national and global activism, often exploiting networks developed by the Zapatistas and the movement, and has also served as a means of self-identification for those who have supported the Ayotzinapa movement, facilitating participation and contribution of ideas and actions as a part of the solidarity community. The social movement academics have frequently noted these are important functions of the use of social media. Um, at the same time, electronic and particularly social media has developed to keep news platforms of media, with nearly 65 million people now access, accessing the internet, of, of which 9 out of 10 use social media sites. The fast-developing environment has played an important role in the media coverage of Ayotzinapa. The mass demonstrations around Ayotzinapa were unignorable and reflected a widely held outrage with the political class and its suspected association with organised crime, which facilitated impunity. However, this concern is often represented in the national and international media as, a lim as limited to a minority of leftist readings of La Jornada and El Proceso. But the ability of the movement to keep Ayotzinapa uh, associated via hashtags and trending over weeks, despite the best efforts of countermeasures employed by mysterious forces, helped to sustain media coverage and demonstrate a wider sympathy for the movement. It also showed that political issues can even displace celebrity news on Twitter, even if temporarily. In the last five years, electronic media, um, media platforms such as Sin Embargo and Anima Politico have played an increasingly important role in influencing the news agenda and reaching a younger audience with critical analysis. These media appear to operate for far more independently than many of the traditional outlets and follow social media issues closely, reinforcing media interest in social media issues. Traditional media like Universal, Televisa and Millennium have increasingly been forced to acknowledge this emerging news environment and reflect on its significance. Therefore, social media has, has, to some extent, opened up a wider space for followers' news information and fostered reflection on citizen participation in social media with a political dimension, not always positively, obviously. Similarly, the international media, which frequently accepted and promoted the, 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 uh, the PR image of Peña Nieto's government uh, as the great reformer and saviour of Mexico, has been forced at least to recalibrate its coverage in the face of plummeting, the plummeting popularity of Peña Nieto and the ongoing human rights crisis surrounded by uh, uh, the Ayotzinapa <coughs> case. Perhaps the significance of this electronic media environment is yet unclear, and it's quite possible that the establishment media outlets will begin to exercise greater influence over the news agenda on social media. But, the, but for the present, it seems to provide a plural space. Of course, this leads into a range of issues, such as equality of quality of information available, whether information flows become more atomized, reaching only those who really, who already share those views, i.e., preaching to the converted thus potentially polarising more than generating a space for deliberation and political debate. There is also the issue of security and surveillance, which I'm not going to touch on here. Lastly, this change is only partial, and the traditional practice of media management remains. The pre-response to the Inter-American Commission investigators' report was to hold a press conference in which they misrepresented the forensic evidence in order to support the version of events uh, which the government has sustained throughout. This was a crass attempt to distract attention from the report and once again abuse the trust of relatives. Um, but the, but the, PG, the PGR and the government response has been covered rather tamely by Televisa and Millennium and actors like Isabella Miranda and Wallace was out in the media today 
um, calling for the removal of inter-American commission investigators and supporting the PGR work. Therefore, it tends to look like some of the old hands and old practice are, are alive and well. However, the concerted effort to ensure that the state and federal authorities are insulated uh, from the fallout of Ayatollah continues, as this indicates. But time will tell if the families and the movement can sustain and advance its claims for justice and truth. However, it's clear that the media, in its increasing diversity, will play a major part in that. Okay, so well, thank you all for coming. Uh, I want to thank all the panelists for being here, especially Monica Serrano, who is joining us from Mexico. Um, I will talk about how the Ayotzinapa case has been connected or not with the other disappearances in Mexico. Um, the Ayotzinapa case, as it's, it was referred to in Mexican and international media, attracted uh, the attention as few other human rights violations in Mexico have done. Thousands of people got onto the streets in Mexico and elsewhere to demand the return of the students and justice. In four disappearances, a public and social problem, are usually perceived in Mexico as private and as affecting only the families of the disappeared. For the first time with Ayotzinapa, large sectors of Mexican society were suffering the uncertainty of disappearances and the incompetence and mistreatment of the authorities that thousands of families of disappeared have undergone over time in Mexico. Thousands of people were wearing the faces of the students, learning their names, and missing them every day. <coughs> the Mexican government was in the spotlight, and the event of Iguala seemed to be a turning point in Mexican reality. But did the disappearance of the 43 students put the wider phenomenon of disappearances in the social arena? Have the responses given to this case contested disappearances in a broader perspective? I would say that it did put disappearances in the public arena, but not really to the extent that is needed. I will briefly discuss why I say this, and I'm happy to go deeper on any of the points uh, during the Q&A. So the Ayotzinapa case was reported as a local matter and treated like that for a few days. Uh, President Peña Nieto and the Minister of Interior tried to minimize the situation and say, well, this is a local issue and, and it's going to be solved by local authorities. And it was probably due to national and international pressure that the case was passed to federal, federal authorities after more than a week. The discourse then changed <coughs> and public servants tried to portray it as a narco-related event and minimize the participation of state agents. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs even issued some guidelines on how to speak about this event, stressing the local character of the attack, the organized crime's uh, responsibility for this, and the wide action of the state to solve this problem. During the first days, many of us working on disappearances thought that this case would put the broader picture of disappearances in Mexico into the spotlight. However, over the first weeks and maybe months, more than revealing the reality of the disappearances, this case revealed a more concrete horror, the mass graves. Since the disappearance of the students, hundreds of bodies have been found in mass graves, and not only in Iguala, but across the country. The government has failed in identifying these remains, and in many places, the families are the ones that have to go look into these graves by themselves. But going back to the disappearances, even when it is true that the figure of more than 26,000 disappeared persons is frequently mentioned in many publications, deeper connections or other histories of disappearances are re rarely found. 
the broad context of disappearances in which the Ayotzinapa case is inserted is portrayed more like a background uh, to the main story, the 43 disappeared students, than a story in itself in which thousands of people, just like the 43, have disappeared. The main story should also include those dozens of thousands of people disappeared and their families who struggle against a corrupt state that does not comply with its obligations. During my fieldwork, I spoke to relatives of disappeared persons from the 70s, the 80s, and the war on drugs, well, the so-called war on drugs, and I asked them if the disappearance of the students from Ayotzinapa had made their own cases and the problem of enforced disappearances more visible in Mexico. The answer was not the same for everyone, as I interviewed different people from different organizations in different regions, but I found some similarities. Almost all of them had organized events with relatives of Ayotzinapa, and they noted that even when people have shown solidarity in those events, there has not been a change in the way that they are treated locally or nationally. An example has been some demonstrations organized by relatives of the disappeared and the lack of resp uh, response to them. On Mother's Day and on the <coughs> International Day of the Victims of Enforced Disappearances, the relatives of the disappeared that were already organized before Ayotzinapa took to the streets. The people that massively demonstrated for the 43 did not do the same for the thousands of other disappeared people. And in this same way, at the demonstrations for the 43, and even in the long list of artistic representation after the attacks, the link to the thousands of other disappeared are almost inexistent. Another point of how the disappearance of the 43 students has overshadowed, instead of highlighting the thousands of disappearance, disappearances, is the mistreatment received during the, UN, the United Nations Committee on Enforced Disappearances exam to Mexico. This exam, held early this year, had been organized prior to the Iguala attacks, but, the, but that situation made this exam the one with most attention in the history of the committee, according to the commissioners. And even, even when what was a state was much more than the Ayotzinapa case, uh, this case gained more attention than the broader picture. Two mothers with disappeared sons that traveled to Geneva um, received much less consideration by the press and even by people who showed solidarity than the mother and father of Ayotzinapa that were uh, there in Geneva too. Within the report, the committee said that disappearances were a widespread phenomenon in Mexico, which the Mexican <coughs> government immediately denied. Ayotzinapa is an example of how the government acts and reacts, but the attention has been focused not on Ayotzinapa as one case, but in, on Ayotzinapa as the case. The final example of this would be the report of the group of experts of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. After the, after the report was released, the debate has been mostly around the possibility or impossibility on the, uh, of the historical truth, and especially about the possibility of the fire at the rubbish dump in Kokula. As you may remember, the general attorney said that the students had been handed to narcos who had burned them alive and thrown their ashes to the river. The group <coughs> of experts proved this version was not possible. And of course, this is greatly important. If, as the report suggests, the general attorney made up this story, the biggest investigation in the history of Mexico, as boasted by Murillo Caram, the, the general attorney, is basically a scam. This will show that the government used its resources not to find the truth, but to cover it because of what showing it may bring. But this is not the only significant thing about the report. 
One of the sections of this work contains recommendations to the Mexican state regarding disappearances. These recommendations are very similar to those given months before by the UN Committee on Enforced Disappearances and in 2011 by the UN Working Group on Enforced or Involuntary Disappearances in terms of investigation, registration, uh, oh, prosecution, legislation, attention to the victims, and alone, etc. So the fact that four years after the Working Group's report, the recommendations are the same and even more dramatic now, should be a scandal of similar proportions to that of the historical lie. The almost non-existent attention to this other part of the report also shows that this case has been isolated from its context. Even when the case of the 43 students <coughs> has brought the debate of disappearances to the public scene in national and international publications and forums such as this, there seems to be a disconnection with the causes, the perpetrators, and the consequences of these disappearances. The struggle over the hashtag Fue el Estado, the state did it, in the case of the 43, is really important. The government, as I said, has tried to relegate this issue to a local event and to put the emphasis on the, of the responsibility on organized crime. The fact that the government talks about missing or absent people that not, doesn't have a re reliable list of people disappeared and is unwilling to prosecute people under the disappearance crime are probably part of the same problem that made them deny that disappearances are a widespread practice in Mexico. The Mexican state is not willing to acknowledge the extent of the problem of enforced disappearances because this would mean accepting the widely spread commission of human rights violations by members of the state. Thus, society, the media, and scholars like us working on the subject should be particularly careful in understanding the case of Ayotzinapa as one in which enforced disappearances were committed and one that should be investigated, some people brought to justice, and the whereabouts of the disappeared revealed. Nonetheless, all of this should not be a finish point, but a starting point for dealing with all the other disappearances and with the underlying factors that make them possible. Thank you for your attention. Uh, Monica. Thank you. Um, it is really, uh, I'm really happy to have the opportunity to be here today and to talk about um, an issue that uh, is a clear uh, concern for many of us in Mexico. As Maria and, and others have said, the disappearance of the students was the first um, a brutal event that perhaps hit the international uh, headlines, but it was uh, not the first incident. By the end of the Calderón administration, authorities had in fact recognized the widespread nature of the criminal violence affecting the country and estimates of drug-related killings and disappeared were more or less officially recognized. Yet many continue to debate the nature and the scope of the violence, referring to changes in the homicide rate that we continue to debate. Is it going down? Is it going up? To the relevant periods that should be considered. Should we, should we be considering 2008 and the unleash of Calderon's war, or should we look far back and perhaps start looking at trends in the mid-1980s and the opening of the cocaine economy. The spectacular or the widespread nature of the and systematic nature of the violence became also a, an issue of debate 
as was Calderón's decision, as, as was Calderón's decision to resort to the military to confront the drug problem. As I said, by the end of the administration, the widespread character had been uh, accepted, but the nature of the violence and its effects on the population remained contentious. Then, in the summer of 1910, the first massacre of San Fernando involving migrants uh, unveiled the magnitude of the risks attendant to populations and groups that in the context of civil wars would be considered innocent civilians. But it was undoubtedly the assassination of Javier Sicilia's son in March 2011 and the role assumed by the poet in the victims' movement that changed the terms of the debate. The victims, now it seemed, acquired a center stage position. New laws were promised and debated, but little has changed. Soon after Cecilia and his friends were killed by a Beltran Leyva splinter gang, in the course of one month, a chain of mass graves were again discovered, was again discovered in San Fernando Tamaulipas in April 2011, involving as many as nearly 200 bodies. And in May 2012, again, 49 human torsos were found in Cadereyta, in Nuevo León. Then in the context of the rise of self-defense groups in Michoacán, the discovery of yet another mass grave consisting of 35 clandestine tombs and over 75 bodies was found in La Barca in the limits between Michoacán and Jalisco, a territory that had been fiercely disputed between two trafficking organizations, the Caballeros Templarios that were uh, firmly established in Michoacán until then, and the Cartel Jalisco Nueva Generación that has now gained uh, public and media attention. These brutal events had triggered protests and diplomatic recriminations clearly from Central American countries, but failed to agitate Mexican society. In fact, Mexican authorities, Sedena, had reported that in a two-year period between 2011 and 2013, the army had located 198 clandestine graves and 496 bodies, 52 of these in Tamaulipas, 14 in Veracruz, and seven in Durango. There was little or no national outbreak. The contrast with the response to Ayotzinapa couldn't be clear. If the first demonstrations in the case of, Ayot of Ayotzinapa brought basically together students and the more radical bases of the left, Clearly, by late November, the voices demanding justice and truth multiplied and became louder. It was in this context that the government conceded to the special commission uh, that was appointed by the Inter-American Commission of Human Rights that is now <coughs> co cooperating with investigations. How can we account for this? Three factors have been identified. Ayotzinapa involved the students. It happened in real time with the students communicating as the events unfolded, and the complicity of state authorities, which was also reported in real time, was uh, equally important. The last uh, common feature concerns the government's attempt to underplay the gravity of the events. All these cases have a number of elements in common. The mass killings took place in territories contested by drug trafficking organizations. 
The territorial disputes were in turn exacerbated by a drop control strategy that placed special emphasis on a high value targets, on high value targets, and that led to the fragmentation of criminal organizations. In many of these cases, the collusion or active participation of local policemen and state authorities also became clear. In fact, many of these cases became emblematic of the degree of involvement of police and corrupt officials. Although in, in many of these cases, the victims appeared to be civilians, as would be depicted in, in a civil war context, the killings took place in localities in which local populations had long been exposed to brutal violence, and I think this was particularly clear in the case of La Barca in Michoacán. And with some ex exceptions, uh, the civilian population in these localities displayed a passive role that we could, we can delve into that later on. Um, as a result of this, the local context provided what uh, in, in, in human rights and in particular in mass atrocity crimes would be depicted as an enabling environment. How can we account for the institutional failure to anticipate these fatal events? In fact, US authorities had duly reported the risks in March 2010, they had referred to the similar conflict between the Zetas and the Gulf Cartel and warned that Matamoros could become a battle zone. The DEA, in turn, had referred to the Zetas' determination to assert their hegemony in the zone to their infamous links to the Caiviles and to their new methodology to enter and seize territorial control by mastering their ability to corrupt, kill, and intimidate. In the view of US authorities, high-level corruption and the penetration of state, local state authorities had in turn undermined the government's ability to properly investigate the massacres. Four months before the first San Fernando massacre, the US embassy had concluded that drug trafficking was now operating in near or total impunity, at least uh, when it came to Tamaulipas. But perhaps most, more significant was the fact that since 2009, US authorities were able to anticipate the consequences of Calderon's strategy, the high value target strategy, and reported that the escalation of violence was uh, the result of a series of blows that the military and police had inflicted on the cartels and that had in turn result, resulted in more violent competition between criminal organizations and their proclivity to go down market and engage in a myriad of criminal activities. This interpretation was in turn confirmed by the confessions made by Comandante Ache, a former Beltran Leiva uh, confidant, in relation to Sicilia's son's assassination. The parallel zones stop here. They can also be found in the Baroque response of authorities in terms of uh, uh, trying to hide and manipulate uh, the information and the investigations, but also in the relentless demand for justice from victims and relatives. In terms of the authorities' response, again, the attempts to hide the facts and to manipulate the investigations were very clear and duly reported by US authorities since the San Fernando massacres. 
when in fact they referred to the way in which the handle of the bodies and, and the way they had been spread was a deliberate attempt of state authorities to try to conceal the number of bodies and had uh, clearly impacted on the capacity to properly investigate the facts. And of course, under pressure from the PGR, Ray had voted in favor of keeping the quarantine issued by the PGR on uh, the information related to the San Fernando massacres. The government's concern about the potential impact of international, clear, of international justice was clear given the extent of infiltration and collusion of, of local authorities, of local police authorities, uh, in, in these events. In terms of the justice demand, what we saw was that through social pressure and the demonstrations, the government conceded in November <coughs> to uh, in November 2013, particularly from Central American countries in the <coughs> first instance, the government conceded to set up a, a particular uh, a partnership between a number of NGOs and the Argentine forensic team to collaborate in the search and identification of uh, many of the migrants killed in Tamaulipas. And this was in fact the basis for the, the, the first limited but important external presence through the Argentine forensic team in the official investigation surrounding Ayotzinapa. Then in November 2014, as a result of social pressure, the government then uh, accepted the, the, suggestion, the suggestion to set up the special commission, interdisciplinary group of independent experts. Although the prospects of these investigations and even the results of the report of this interdisciplinary group uh, don't seem to be very promising, it, their development has brought to the surface, of, I think, at least two factors. As has been the case in Colombia, the demand for truth and justice has understandably relied on the standard human rights instruments and principles. In doing so, these actors have also reached to national and international actors and to transnational activism. And, and I think the fact that we are here discussing the issue is a testimony in, in part uh, to that uh, concern. But the decision to resort to standards human rights instruments was clearly influenced by the relative positive track record that human rights instruments had accumulated in terms of reducing human rights violations and perhaps too in strengthening the democracy, in particular uh, when it came to state-perpetrated uh, violations or violations perpetrated by security, state security forces. The research carried out by Catherine Seeking, Lee Payne and others has shown how using at least one of the instruments that we normally associate with transitional justice can have a, an important impact on human rights standards and possibly too with um, democratic legitimacy. And more recent research conducted by Guillermo Trejo and others also claims that it can also have an impact in a, a crime control capacity. This, uh, the use of human rights instruments was clearly uh, also bolstered by a number of security sector reform initiatives 
that were deployed in places from Argentina uh, uh, and Chile and, and would have perhaps had a more positive effect in, in El Salvador had it, had it not been for the way in which drug policies ended up aggravating uh, the, the situation created by the murders there. But what is clear is that many of the human rights instruments and transitional justice instruments that we now know had a positive impact in human rights performance were originally conceived to address past authoritarian human rights violations and state repression. As Tom Parr has pointed out, they were in fact originally conceived to remind governments that even in truly extreme conditions, and I here quote, governments can resort to exceptional measures, can do virtually anything, anything other than convicting people without a fair trial, and much less torturing or summarily, summarily, summarily executing them. Many of the brutal events that we have discussed here have clearly involved the participation, the active participation of government forces. And although a chain of cases from Tatlaya to Tanguato show that, that in confronting threats, Mexico's federal forces are far from abiding the principles endorsed by Tom Pryor and Inter-American Human Rights Commission, I think it is important to distinguish at least two types of behavior. The one that results from the infiltration, cooptation, and takeover of uh, local police forces and uh, uh, recent research on, uh, on, on Monterrey suggests, and, and the conversations I've had with authorities that were uh, responsible for some of the policies there, that efforts to try to clean police forces can lead to dismissing as many as 90% of local police forces, and then to try to uh, 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 isolate the newly uh, uh, trained police forces in what, for all purposes, accounts to military compounds. This is the case of the Fuerza Civil in Monterrey. The other modality concerns the excesses uh, that take place in confrontations between federal forces and armed groups. Most, in most occasions, criminal groups. And we can, of course, refer to a chain of mostly failed efforts to tackle the infiltration problem, whether at the local, state, or federal levels. And, and, and the changes in the names of the federal police, I think, is the best uh, indicator for the uh, degree of failure. But in, in addressing the issue of these type of violations, I think it is also important to try to keep in mind the context in which they are taking place and what are the chances of retraining police, whether at three level, whether at the federal, the local, or the state level, what are the real chances <coughs> of success in a drug contaminated context and context in which the paradigm of the repressive drug policy remains in place, by which drug organizations are granted illegal contracts to exploit illegal uh, resources, resources that have deemed illegal, 
and as a result of that, are transferred massive financial rents that in turn empower them to buy the weapons with which they confront state forces. Thank you very much. I'm sorry. Um, to my brief, which I gave myself, so I shouldn't complain about it, is to talk about how the Yotzinapa scandal has affected the Mexican military. Um, so I have two very simple sort of points to make, which I'll make right at the beginning, so I'm not going to talk for too long. The first thing that the, the scandal has helped fuel growing criticism of the military. Um, and the second point is that I'm, I think it's still very uncertain what kind of effect this criticism is going to have. So those are my two very simple points. Um, a lot of what I'm going to say is, echo, is going to echo some of the other things that people have said. Um, not really contradictive, but maybe combine some of the points in a slightly different way. Um, before I get dive into Eoxinapa itself, I'm going to do, I'm a historian, so I'm going to do what historians usually do, which is sketch lots and lots of background context to begin with. <coughs> um, so, to begin with, if we look at the Mexican military over the last few decades, uh, I think you can see two parallel, contradictory processes going on. Firstly, really since the, first, the early 1980s, the government has gradually increased the military's role in domestic security. Um, of course, the military upheld domestic order in Mexico long, long before this, or it helped, was heavily involved in suppressing student and guerrilla movements in the 1960s and 70s, which I'll get to more on that a bit later. But in the mid-1970s, mid the military in Mexico was still remarkably small by regional standards. Beginning in the 1980s, the military has grown budget, uh, size, and proliferating institutional roles in state and local police, in prisons, in customs, even in the Attorney General's office and so forth. All of this indicate what we could call a gradual militarization of domestic security. Uh, of which the operations against drug cartels are only the most obvious, I think the most important, but the, only, the most obvious example of this. So this is not a smooth historical process. It has its ups and downs. Uh, the government militarised the, the police in Dayefe in 1997 and they quickly abandoned that initiative because of local problems and opposition from the, uh, the city government. So it's not just sort of a unilinear thing, but I think overall the trend is very clear. So that's the one big historical process to bear in mind. The second countervailing trend that I think you can see over the same period is growing public criticism of the military and its role in policing the country. According to the few political scientists who've written about this, uh, Monica is one of them, actually, so I'm very indebted to many, many of the things she's written. Um, during the priest's heyday, the military was a taboo topic for public discussion. Uh, as a historian, I'm a little suspicious of this. I think civil society was never as quiescent as perhaps is point, as painted as being under the pre, but there's certainly something to this. Since the 1980s, we see some of the restrictions on what the public could say or could know about the military have, uh, falling away. NGOs, journalists, filmmakers, everyday citizens, academics, and to a much lesser extent, I think, political parties, particularly the PRD, have questioned and criticised how the military polices the country in a more sustained and more publicly visible way. And again, this process has had its ups and downs. The Chiapas Rebellion in 1994 was particularly important. Calderon's war on drugs spawned a fledgling peace movement, as we've heard. <coughs> it caused complaints of military human rights abuses to spike. And of course, it's also spawned the outward offences, which is a pretty profound re 
rejection of the federal government's um, role in policing. Uh, I'm also lumping together a lot of different types of criticism here for the sake of brevity. Some people protested specific abuses and, and, and excesses. Others pointed to sort of larger structural problems uh, connected with relying on the police to, uh, the military to police a supposed uh, democracy, problems like inadequate training, a lack of civilian oversight, budgets and military justice, or simply the <coughs> government's inability to achieve its stated objectives in the war on drugs. Interestingly, or for, interestingly for me at least, there's also been a historiographical parallel to this kind of mounting criticism um, as the government, since 2000 particularly, has opened up new archives uh, documenting police and military repression in the 1960s and 70s. We still just about cling on to access to those archives, I think, that's the last I've heard, although there's been efforts to, to um, make access um, harder, yeah. shall we say. Um, so... Those are the two big trends I think it's, it's helpful to keep in mind, or at least I, I think it's helpful as a historian. So when the PRI regained the presidency in 2012, I think it was very tempting to think that both these trends had already culminated in Calderon's war on drugs, uh, which was heavily militarised and also heavily criticised. Uh, Peña Nieto, after all, promised, that, or at least he strongly hinted that he would de-escalate the drug war, take the soldiers off the street, maybe replace, replace them with a national police force, um, stabilise the country, uh, move on to other things. You also, there's other things going on. It seemed like he would really strengthen um, Gobernación, uh, the civilian in, uh, interior ministry, uh, rather than rely so much on the military. So that's what it looked like might be happening in 2012. I think, if anything, both of these two trends I've talked about have just become even more visible and even more starkly opposed under under Peña Nieto. We've seen a spate of scandals over extrajudicial, extrajudicial killings by state forces, most prominently by the military at Tlatlaya. A recent study of newspaper reports has found that since 2012, the overall number of military skirmishes has slightly decreased, uh, but the army's lethality, that is the ratio of enemies to soldiers killed, has been increasing to quite suspicious levels. Uh, in the background, we also have a long-running dispute about military, the, military's, just, the jurisdiction of military justice, which continues to rumble on. Since 2014, trials of soldiers accused of abusing civilians uh, now must take place in civilian courts. So we wait to see exactly how that's going to uh, play out. The first case that I've read, heard about has been a, a soldier tried, uh, a soldier who was based in uh, a in Rebellion, um, who was tried for the crime of, of, of forced disappearance by a state a judge in, in that state. Uh, and it's quite a tell, it, it may give us some hints about how this is going to work in the future. He was found guilty, uh, which is interesting, uh, but it also found that he was acting entirely alone, so he was a bad apple. It also found, sent him to a military jail to serve his time, not a civilian jail. And also, the whereabouts of the body of the disappeared person is still, we have no idea where it is. Um, so, it's, it sends out some interesting, um, ambiguous signals. So that's the context. What differences are you often have made to all of this? Well, I think it's certainly given further impetus to criticism of military policing in various ways. At the very least, it's shown that after seven years of a heavily militarised solution to the drug war, to the drug cartels, cartel corruption and power are very much still with us. And of course... More than that, many have argued that the military were not just incompetent in this episode, but were complicit. Surviving students claimed immediately afterwards that soldiers taunted them and refused to help them with injured 
injured colleagues, journalists immediately noted how close the site of the abduction was to the military barracks garrison, and it is just really several hundred yards away. They wondered why the army had not intervened to do something. Um, the Attorney General was asked about this in a press conference soon afterwards, uh, and he argued that military inaction was due to the officers not being aware of what was going on, and he also argued that such inaction was in, in many ways a blessing in disguise, anyway, since it showed the military's obedience to civilian authorities. Uh, I think this is a, a rather spurious answer, since it, it ignores the military's own autonomous in, intelligence gathering capacity, which is substantial, and it also ignores the military's own um, mandate to send out reactive patrols to just see what's going on of on, on its own volition. They have that mandate to do, to do that, so, and they didn't, or they did, and it's much too late, as we found out. So, and increasingly, in the months afterwards, students and their families have, have confronted the military much more directly, at one point attempting to storm the local garrison and searching the military's incinerator. What I think we can say about all of this, um, I'm not in a very good position to adjudicate these different versions of, of military involvement. I think what we can say with some certainty is that the federal police and military were well aware of the police's clash with students. They'd been tracking students' movements throughout the whole day. And they were able to do this in part because military spies in civilian clothes were present or very close to a, the events as they were unfolding. These are the main findings of the, of the Commission of the Inter-American uh, Inter Commission human rights. Uh, they're also based, these are based on communications logs and on the officer's own testimony given to the, um, to the Attorney General. This is very important since it contradicts earlier official statements, but it also leaves a lot of questions unanswered. It could be argued that careful monitoring of students' movements is in itself suspicious, although we don't know how common this was, whether this was normal practice in Guerrero or not. It might be, we, we don't have enough information. Uh, in the communication logs, if you look carefully at them, and I have done, there's certainly no smoking gun showing that the military or the federal police knew that the police were connected to the narcos and about to commit an atrocity. Uh, but then you wouldn't expect necessarily to find that information historically. There's no precedent for that in Mexico, even if you go back to the 60s and 70s. Um, and also, what we can say is that the, police police, the local police's ties to the narcos were very well known in the town at the time. So, I mean, maybe the, the garrison had no idea about this, but it doesn't say very much for the efficacy and the reach of military intelligence, which in lots of other respects, looking at the sources, looked very thorough. Um, so it's, it's curious, I'll just say. That. <coughs> uh, another irony, I think, you know, one of the things that happened in 2011, 2012, the military reportedly spent a lot of money beefing up its, its capacity to analyse and gather intelligence and also share it with our, other agencies um, to get away from what they call stovepiping, so that, that intelligence is gathered and then it's not mixed. So um, looking at the, the logs, I couldn't help but think of this, because it seemed that you, know, you get them from this sort of shared, there's this shared communication system between the, the federal police and local police and military, and they're all on the same page with this information. Uh, a fat lot of good it did, uh, would be my, my response. Their sharing information didn't seem to help very much in this, in this, 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 uh, this context. We can go a bit more into the sort of details of this, but uh, maybe in, in the question and answer. What I would say more broadly uh, is that I think Oyotzinapa has helped shift public debate about violence in Mexico, and this connects to some of the things Monica and, and the others have talked about. I would say that it's helped broaden the frame a little bit in which we understand violence, away from just criminality 
to include possibly repression and social con and so issues of social control as well. If social and political activists have been caught in the crossfire or deliberately targeted, the story of violence in Mexico, to put it crudely, can't just be about cops and robbers or robbers fighting each other uh, anymore. It has to, it's about more than that. So once protests began last autumn, we saw how readily people started beginning to draw parallels between this case and some of the more famous centrally orchestrated repression uh, of the 1960s and 70s. A few examples. Uh, protesters superimposed faces, uh, images of Peña Nieto's face onto that of Dios Ordaz. Uh, Father Solalinde called for solidarity with the 43 in front of a plaque commemorating the Tlatelolco massacre. So there were people making these historical parallels all over the place. Uh, of course, in Guerrero itself, the echoes with earlier repression and counterinsurgency are unmistakable. As we now know, thanks partly to those archives I mentioned a few minutes ago, uh, we now know that in Mexico's dirty war in the 1970s, Guerrero was the dirtiest front of all. The government suppressed a broad-based civic movement for social and political reform, and then the remnants of that movement formed a radical guerrilla, which the military defeated in the early to mid-1970s using many of the kind, same kind of brutal counterinsurgent tactics uh, familiar from the rest of the hemisphere at the time, systematic torture, murder, uh, death flights, etc. Ayotzinapa produced its share of guerrillas in the 1970s, and the students very much see themselves as continuing in, in, in the vein of these struggles of the past. You only have to look at the, school, the murals on the school wall, which have uh, Marx, Lenin, El Che, Son Comandante Marcos, and uh, Lucio Cabanas, the famous um, guerrilla leader of the 1970s. So I think as a historian, it could be argued that these, these parallels that are being made with the 60s and 70s are, are rather analytically a little bit unhelpful and overstate the similarities between events and eras. We could maybe talk about that. Uh, but if I can be permitted two contradictory thoughts at the same time, I also think they're perfectly understandable and, and in many ways rational, uh, given the military's long-standing tradition of unpunished <coughs> abuses in the state of Guerrero particularly, the official inability to produce a credible report, and the military's refusal to be interviewed by experts of that report. And I should also add the garrison commander's subsequent promotion in the, the, the weeks after this happened. Um, so what will all of this amount to? Um, if criticisms of the military have been growing, partly because of the Yotsinapa, uh, how important are they going to be? I think this is extremely uncertain, chiefly because the military still enjoys very significant support in Mexican society. Uh, you've seen that uh, we see a plethora of op-eds in the mainstream press defending the military's reputation as fundamentally orderly and disciplined. The Secretary of Defense has publicly defended the military's reputation, as you might expect. What you might not expect so much is that he also openly questioned the wisdom of doing away with the military's square or with the military's... Um, autonomous legal privileges. Huh? Uh, I think this is very unusual. I mean, Monica, maybe, I'm not sure you would agree, but it may, I, I can't remember. I, you've got rumblings from the Secretary of Defense in the last decade about certain things, but an open uh, disagreement with, uh, with national policy on that level is, is very, very unusual, I think, in Mexico. Um, so the main point I'm making, you know, you've, we've seen, I'm making, I, you know, public debate about the military is more visible and more, more than in the past, but it's by no means dominated by critical voices. Opinion polls continue to show high approval ratings for the military and its domestic role, as they have done for decades, and that this is something that 
military officers and government officials never fail to point out when they talk to the press. So by way of conclusion, what I just say is that I think it would be very helpful for us to know more about this public support. Um, it's tempting to think of it as a kind of legacy inherited from the authoritarian past, but I'm not sure that's quite right. I, I, it may have endured for shifting reasons. The military's public relations strategy and tactics have certainly evolved in different ways over time. Um, the military's legitimacy, does it, does it reflect this carefully created nationalist and professional image, or is it just a result of people being uh, disgusted with the civilian police? Does it reflect an ignorance of abuses, or does it reflect an approval of them, provided they're directed at certain kinds of people? Uh, we could use more analysis of the, these opinion polls themselves, how they're designed and who commissions them. These are also very important questions to ask of polls, and I don't think anybody's really done that yet. So in sum, I think a deeper examination of the public's appetite for, or at least tolerance of, militarised policing would shed a great deal of light on the contradictions and limits of Mexico's fragile and violent democracy. Thank you very much. Thank you, Tom. I, I do hope that in the further discussion we come back to the military because I suspect that silence and more likely institutional obstruction are a big part of the missing puzzle parts <coughs> for Oyentinapano. Uh, finally, Ben, please. Yeah, I realize I probably should have uh, started because I'm going to give a kind of broader background, uh, uh, particularly about the violence and the, and the drug trade. So um, I just want to say that the, the massacre at Iguala, the Oyentinapano, uh, is just really the tip of the iceberg since Felipe Calderon won the presidential election and declared war on the drug cartels. Uh, these kind of massacres of the innocents have been depressingly familiar. So in, in 2000, August 2010, 72 migrants <coughs> shot in San Fernando, Tamaulipas. January 2010, 16 teenagers gunned down at a party in Juarez. April 2011, 193 bus passengers kidnapped and killed in San Fernando. It's a tiny village in Tamaulipas again. Um, August 2011, 52 lunchtime gamblers burned to death in a Monterrey casino. Investigators have only opened the mass grave of 300 victims of a 2011 massacre in Coahuila a year ago, uh, in 2014. Since the Ayotzinapa, it's not like Ayotzinapa has stopped massacres, very open massacres in Mexico. Um, since Ayotzinapa, there have been other quite high-profile massacres, 15 uh, killed by police in Apanzingan, members of the uh, Autodefensas, nothing done. Uh, 42 killed in Tanjuato on the Michoacán-Jalisco border, nothing done. Uh, they were, in Mexican parlance, metido, right? They were involved. They were somehow involved in the trade. Um, so they were lesser people, criminals, not important. Beyond the dead, then, there were also the disappeared. Uh, not only the kind of 80,000, 90,000 on dead, 23,000 disappeared, but these numbers are far too low, as I think Maria would, would agree with. Beyond the disappeared, uh, there are the other victims of organised crime, the robbed, the kidnapped, the indigenous men, shanghai into forced labour to build tunnels uh, in the north, the women and children corralled into prostitution, as the uh, extraordinary work of Nina Lacani, who's been working on that uh, in Mexico, uh, State and Puebla, has shown. To put this in some kind of perspective, then, uh, official figures um, for the violent deaths in Iraq from 2003 to 2009 totaled around 100,000. Uh, the Guatemalan Civil War, which ran from the 1960s through to the 1990s, caused nearly 200,000 deaths. The UN called that genocide. Despite the government's massaging of the figures, homicide rates in Mexican cities are among the highest in the world still. One person is kidnapped every five minutes. My question then is, how did Mexico get here? And I'm going to concentrate particularly on the drug cartels and the drug trafficking, the drug trade itself. 
During much of the 20th century, Mexico was relatively peaceful, uh, free of the kind of bloody civil conflicts and US-backed dirty wars, which plagued much of Latin America, so had a bigger profile in the rest of Latin America, where it was actually clear of dirty wars is, I think, an argument we can uh, debate. Uh, and when I arrived in Mexico during the 1990s, like so many other people who arrived there, it was because it was undergoing a period of radical democratization, whether it was the Zapatistas in the south or the kind of more formal democratization of the PRD winning Mexico City and the PAN eventually winning the election in 2000. It was a time of great hope, certainly, when I went to study it. So how did Mexico go from that uh, to the kind of mutilations, mass graves and decapitations uh, in barely a decade? Now, for social sciences, making sense of this violence uh, is, is, is hard, right? Um, perhaps it's impossible. Um, and I finished for the second time, actually, Robert Bolaño's extraordinary last novel, uh, 2666, which is not his last novel. It seems to stream out novels that are found in his collection. But his last <laughs> major novel, uh, 2666, he kind of chides uh, us kind of cosy European academics, juxtaposing our kind of weary first-world problems with kind of flashing images of the mutilated bodies and smashed bones and undigested memories of Ciudad Juarez's dead women. In doing so, he seems to say there's no order, there's no explanation, there's no grand narrative, there's no kind of Western social theory that can explain this. Um, by the end of the book, he suggests that this is our, this is Mexico's Holocaust. For the purposes of this roundtable, however, I'm going to try, and here I suggest um, five shifts which have driven Mexico from this relatively stable emerging democracy of the late 1990s to what anthropologist Daniel Goldstein and political scientist Enrique Arias termed the violent pluralism uh, of today. And they are the economic system, the drug trade, the judicial system, the political system, and also um, uh, the shift in US-Mexican relations, which I think is kind of key. In macro terms, then, Mexico's economy has changed dramatically. Free trade agreements like NAFTA have removed protection for farmers and traditional industries. Uh, many young, unskilled workers then have flooded to the overextended northern cities, and they form part of the generation called the ni-ni generation, right? Ni estudia, ni trabaja. They don't study, they don't work. At present, Mexico has the highest percentage of non-working, non-studying 14 to 29-year-olds in the world. They're the foot soldiers uh, and the victims of the drug war. At the same time, neoliberal economic policies have other, other perhaps less expected effects. As traditional industries fail, commercial markets stagnate, Mexican entrepreneurs have also <coughs> moved into illegal markets, not only logging, mining, uh, but also drug trafficking. Uh, <coughs> so I think this is the kind of basis of what's going on uh, in Mexico. Second, the drug trade itself has also changed. Mexican traffickers have exported drugs to the United States since they prohibited drugs in the United States in 1914, uh, but usually under some kind of supervision by the state. Uh, the agreement was fairly clear up to the 1980s. Uh, you don't cause huge amounts of violence, uh, you don't do this incredibly openly, you don't do it in front of US uh, DEA or, or, or Federal Bureau of Narcotics agents, um, but you can do it as long as it's stable and it's non-violent and it's pacific. In actual fact, Sinaloa, which has always been the centre of the Mexican drug trade, had one of the lowest homicide rates during the 1950s and 1960s when it was building up its drug trade. Um, so for over 70 years then, or 80 years really, the state controlled, this state control or this state agreement ensured the drug trade in Mexico was relatively pacific. Few, if any, traf non-traffickers were ever caught in the crossfire, apart from a brief period at the end of the 1970s, which coalesces with the dirty war, and I think that's probably quite uh, not coincidental. 
During the 1990s, however, things changed. Mexico's single party, which ruled over the country since the 20s, started to lose its grip. During the decade, Mexico's four cartels, the Tijuana, Sinaloa, Gulf and Juarez organisations, came into increasing <coughs> conflict with each other uh, as they sought control over the differing smuggling routes. When opposition candidate Calderón came to power in 2006 and declared a war on drug cartels, he exacerbated this process of fragmentation. As the old hierarchies then disappeared, smaller localised groups have sought greater autonomy and higher income. In June this year, then, a US Congress report claimed there were now three national cartels, the Sinaloa, the Zetas and the Jalisco Nueva Generación, uh, four regional groups, so Gulf, Knights Templar, La Familia and the Pacifico Sur cartels, two gatekeeper cartels, the old Juarez and Tinoana cartels, and an estimated 202 crime organisations, principally in Tamaulipas, which had 42, Guerrero with 25, and the Distrito Federal with 24. As this then competition between these groups grow, these smaller organisations have come into conflict, <coughs> causing many of the violent deaths of the last eight, nine years. At the same time, without control of ports, drug-growing real estate, or direct entry points into the US, many have moved into other areas of organised crime, uh, which were previously off-limits under this kind of pre-guided administration. They've got into illegally siphoning petrol, blackmailing oil companies, kidnapping, human trafficking. Uh, they now generate allegedly 50 to 60% of the Zeta's income. Finally, these smaller groups, and I think this is key when it came to Guerrero and, and, and also what's going on in Michoacán, they've started to challenge traditional rural hierarchies. And I don't know if anyone has seen Cartel Land, uh, which I thought was, a, was actually not a terribly good film. It's kind of just King Lear in, in, uh, kind of in Mexico, and I, I thought the, the comparison with the US was dark. But what I thought was fascinating about it, and I'm not sure that the actual director knew, knew what he was getting was how, the, how the, uh, the outer defences were created. They weren't created by just any old citizen, right? They were created by the village elite. And you saw this picture of all the people in their guayaberas, the doctors, the landowners, you know, uh, the, the, the people, educados of the village, who were sitting around. And they were, they were distressed not only about the violence, but the fact that these were people were challenging their social position in the village. And I think what's going on, in, to a certain extent, in the metro countryside is not simply a drug war but it's a class war that's being funded by drug profits um, and I think that's quite clear in, in Michoacán to a certain extent in Guerrero as well um, <coughs> okay so we've had a change in the drug trade we've had a change in, in uh, the um, uh, uh, the economic system the judicial system has been completely unable to cope with this and I'll go this over very quickly, uh, only 12% of crimes are reported to the police in Mexico because no one trusts them uh, only 10% of reported crimes and 1% of actual crimes actually lead to prosecutions. Um, finally, even these limited prosecutions often target the disenfranchised, the poor or the wrongly accused. Few kingpins or hitmen ever face jail. Since Peña Nieto took over and this just came out, the Attorney General has only prosecuted 2,000 people for organised crime and only 80, only 80 in three years for drug offences, which seems kind of extraordinary. Um, fourth, the political system also changed. I won't go into this too much. Um, for decades, one party ruled, um, and it ruled basically through a mixture of force, but also co-option. And this co-option took multiple forms, from the corruption of individual labour leaders uh, to social programmes, schools, health centres, land grants. They even combined with drug traffickers to do these programmes. In Sinaloa, the drug traffickers 
built schools, right? That's what they did. That was part of the agreement with the government. Don't cause a fuss, build some schools for us. Um, <clears throat> however, since the 1990s, this has changed. On the one hand, electoral competition has increased as rival parties start to win different elections. On the other hand, neoliberal economic reforms, which included radical cuts in social spending and the end of government-backed land grants to the peasants, curtailed the ability of political parties to basically co-opt people, to buy votes. Now, without these mechanisms for social redistribution, uh, which aren't peculiar to Mexico, every government, right, to get votes co-ops people, it just the Conservatives do it by letting bankers not pay taxes, right, okay? Um, competing parties in Mexico, however, have relied on other cheaper means to bring local leaders on side. These have included armed force, freedom from prosecution, and a free hand in organised crime. Uh, three years ago, the UN estimated that over 60% of Mexico's town councils um, relied in part on drug financing. Um, basically, shaking down the local drug dealers uh, for a part of their income would fund uh, the municipal government. Together, these shifts then have generated a Mexican political system which, instead of relying on party politics, electoral competition and the distribution of spoils, instead relies on the control of organised crime. For scholars like Daniel Goldstein then and Enrique Enrias, this is not some misshapen or malformed form of Western democracy, some waypoint to a better future. It is the future. It's democracy in a neoliberal world, or what they class as violent pluralism. Furthermore, Mexicans have found their solution not in the old ways of political organising and protest, but in mirroring the state, uh, in forming their own heavily armed community policing organisations, and if necessary, making their own links uh, to all other organised crime groups, just like the outdoor defensor groups did. Finally, then, I'd, I'd like to end with, with one other kind of thought on the reasons why this has taken off. I think, uh, and this I think has been clear, particularly over the Ayotzinapa case, but also over the escape of Chapel, which we haven't got onto. I think Mexico hasn't simply lost shame. It's realised that America can do nothing about it anymore. That the two, the two economies are so imbricated that the US can't pull funding from anything in Mexico. It can't force Mexico... Uh, or embarrass Mexico to do anything. And I also think it that there are new rules of kind of the global neoliberal economy. Private capital goes where labour costs are cheap and natural resources are. And they don't care about human rights organisations. Uh, people are rubbing, still rubbing their hands at the, the thought of all that privatised petroleum that sits in Tamaulipas, which is effectively a dead zone. Uh, that journalists, human rights organisations don't go to. They don't report on it anymore. They don't go to it. Uh, but private petroleum companies are happy to go there because they have a, effectively a private army uh, to, to back them.